I spend a lot of my time just trying to remember stuff. I don't know if you can relate to me in that. I will walk into a room almost every day, and then I'll stop and say, now, why did I come in here? Or I'll open the fridge or the pantry, and then I immediately I've forgotten the reason I opened the door. Uh, I struggle to remember people's names. It's something I have to really work hard at, or, or important details that I'm supposed to remember. Jennifer, my wife, will often start a sentence with, now, Kyle, don't forget to pick up the boys from school. Don't forget we're having dinner with our neighbors, because she knows me. She knows I'm prone to forget. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things to do, though, we do this together, Jennifer and me, we'll try to remember some entirely irrelevant piece of information that has nothing to do with our lives. You know, we'll sit there and say, now, what was the name of that guy? He was in the movie about the horse, and the mom from Home Alone, I think, was in it. You know, like, you ever do that? And then I, st- I get my phone out to Google it, and Jennifer says, no, don't Google it. Use your brain. Use that part of your brain that has to remember things. You know, don't cheat. Um, but then I cheat still, you know, I can't remember, uh, you know, the, the movie about the horse. Like, so I think we can relate to this. Like, we sh- it's, just, it's just one of our human weaknesses, that we struggle to remember things. We, we're easily forgetful. But here's an interesting question. Do you think you could ever forget God? Now, that may seem like a ridiculous question. You can't forget God. He's God. How could I forget God? But y'all know, in the Bible, we're actually given a fair number of warnings in the Scripture about the possibility that we might forget God. We see them, several of them, in Deuteronomy. Moses was prone to speak to the people of Israel this way. I'm going to give you one example from Deuteronomy 8, where Moses, you know, of course, the people of Israel have been rescued out of slavery. God has done it in his miraculous power, signs and wonders, left and right. And yet Moses looks at the people in Deuteronomy 8 and he says, Let not your hearts become proud and you forget the Lord your God who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. Now what does that really mean? Is Moses concerned that the people of Israel are going to forget that God exists? No, no. And and see, this is where the English language uh, sometimes doesn't really do justice to the biblical language that there's something deeper that we don't always see because our language has a more shallow meaning. See, when we talk about forgetting and remembering in our English language, we're just talking about mental recall. I'm trying to remember the name of a movie. I'm trying to remember somebody's name. I forgot to pick up my kids from school, things like that. Mental recall, right? That's, that's legitimate. But in the scripture, when the Bible uses the terms about remembering and forgetting, it means something much deeper than that. In, in the case of the Israelites to become proud in their hearts and forget God, that meant that they were at risk of disregarding God. They were at risk of losing their love for him. See, to forget, in biblical terms, to forget means to remove something from the center of your life, to remove something from your heart. We can think about it like this. Imagine somebody that you deeply love, somebody you really, truly love, is about to go on a, on a very long trip. They're going to be gone a year. And with tears in your eyes, before they leave, you hug them and hold on to them, and you say, don't forget me. Now, what are you saying? You're not saying, don't forget that I exist. Of course not. What you're saying is, don't lose your love for me while you're away. Don't forget how precious we are to each other. And that's really more in line with what the Scripture means when when it uses these terms, that we can indeed forget God. 
by removing him or replacing him in our hearts. And that's why we're called in the scripture, fairly consistently, we're called to remember the Lord, to remember him. And this is what King David is aiming to do in Psalm 103. One of my very favorite Psalms, what, what, Psalm, what Psalm 103 is, is intended to do is to bring a remembrance of God. That is to say, we're pressing the love of God more deeply down into our hearts. That's what remembering is. We're making God more and more the center of our being. And so before we get into the text, you know, this is Thanksgiving week, and I wanted to preach this text for Thanksgiving. I think it's going to be a tremendous help and encouragement to us. But y'all, when you sit around the table on Thursday, perhaps with friends or family, uh, maybe this is your tradition that we're all going to go around the table and say what we're thankful for, which is a teenager's dream. I remember as a teenager just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to talk. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to, to you know, say what I'm thankful for. Uh, but in that moment, what are we doing? We're not trying to mentally recall things. We're taking deep, deep down into our hearts the goodness and the blessings that we've received, right? The blessings of God. And that's what Psalm 103 aims to do. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of reflection, of remembrance. Look with me at verse 1. You're going to recall uh, that we just sang these words here. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Now you notice right up front who David is talking to. He's talking to his own soul. He's talking to himself, to the, really the deepest part of himself, and he's telling his soul what to do. I don't know if you've ever done that before. He's, he's basically telling his, his inner man, his soul, his heart, what to do, what it ought to do. And he's directing his soul to praise, to worship. That's what bless the Lord means. Praise and worship God. Now, it should be, I think, clear up front that David is not interested in going through the religious motions, is he? If he were, then he would be telling others perhaps to bless the Lord if he wanted to posture himself in an external kind of way. But no, this is not religious uh, box checking. He's talking to himself at the deepest level, his own soul. David is not interested in outward appearances. He's talking to himself. He says, all that is within me, whether anyone ever sees it or not, all that is within me, bless God's holy name. Y'all, one of the surest ways that we might forget God is to miss what David's doing right here and to be merely religious. To be merely religious is very easy for us to do. It's possible that a person could check all the religious boxes and yet still have a heart that's far away from God. that's, That's one of God's chief complaints against the people of Israel in the Old Testament. God says it to them that you praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. These were people who were being merely religious. Jesus warned against, in in the Sermon on the Mount, he warned us in the same way. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Beware of looking like a Christian only externally for the sake of the approval of people. Whereas true faith is between me and God chiefly, and then it spills out from there, right? Don't start externally, start internally so that you know it's legitimate, right? So when David speaks to his own soul, 
That's exactly what he's doing. When he says, all that is within me, bless God's holy name. These are the words of a man who actually, truly craves for God. This is the same man who wrote, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. In the Psalms, we read that my soul cleaves to the dust, but revive me, God, according to your word. These are the words of men and women who desire God at the deepest level. That's what we're meant to be. The desire for God's glory goes deep down into his bones. And so for David, there's no pretense, there's no faking, there's no ulterior motive that he's trying to put God in his debt, that God would owe him something. No, he just wants to praise him for who he is. And this is how we're designed to relate to God. That we're not seeking something from him, chiefly. That's not what it means to be a Christian, but that we seek to know himself, God himself. That that's the goal, to know God, to love God. This is how we're meant to pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. What if every prayer, if every approach to God started just like that? Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, when he spoke on this verse, he said, this, this verse is meant to plunge us into the stream of life that we might dive down to the bottom and swim in it with intense delight. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Now you may say that sounds great. I want that, but I don't know how to get that. I don't know, I can say the words, of course, I can say the words, but I don't know how to create in my own heart that kind of disposition, that that's who I really am, not just what I say. But I want you to notice again, David is not conjuring these feelings up out of nowhere. He's not telling his soul to do something that his soul's incapable of doing. There's, there's something driving this praise, and he tells us in verse 2, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget none of his benefits. There's that word. There's that word forget, right? Forget not all of God's benefits. Or you could state it positively and say it like this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and remember all of his blessings. Remember all of his grace. Take deep down into your heart all of God's goodness and grace, all of his benefits, And this is basically what the whole psalm does. I'm going to encourage you. We're not going to cover every verse today, but I want to encourage you to meditate on this psalm this week. It will do you a world of good because this is what the whole psalm is. The whole psalm is a reflection on the benefits, the graces, the blessings of God. You see it in verse 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life, from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. David is showing us the encompassing nature of God's love, something that covers everything, every circumstance, every person, God's love. Look, in our sin, David says, God pardons. In our sickness, God heals. In our despair, God redeems. That is to say, there's no human darkness so great that the light of God's mercy cannot overwhelm it and pierce through. But it's more than that. David has just told us that, that God is a problem solver. 
He pardons sin. He heals diseases, things like that, right? But that's not all God does. God's not just putting out fires left and right throughout the world all day. Uh, David says it's more than just God pitying us. Look at what he does. In, uh, I think it's in verse uh, 4 and 5. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things. God's job is not just to rescue us from the bad stuff. God also esteems and elevates and satisfies us. Now that may be for us a struggle. I fully understand that I'm a sinner and God rescues, forgives my sin, yes. But deep down, I tend to think that God more or less just puts up with me. Because I know I'm no good. And God's, I'm just lucky that God chooses to let me live and keep me around. Maybe that's our perspective. And that maybe seems like a very holy perspective. I'm, just, I'm, I'm small and God's great. Okay, sure. But look at what the scripture says. God doesn't just put up with you. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. David wondered at this truth back in Psalm 8. I'm going to put this on the screen. Great, famous words from Psalm 8. David says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you, God, have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is the esteem. This is the blessing of God, not just putting out the fires in our life, but actually crowning us with glory and majesty. And what's especially crazy to me, at least, about this is that we consider why God does this for us. It's all grace. It would be one thing if David were looking to God in Psalm 8 or again in Psalm 103 and saying, The Lord blesses me. He crowns me because I've earned my place at his table. He has esteemed me as righteous above all other men. And therefore, I've earned my place and I am blessed. That's the way religion works. That's what we would assume to be true in our flesh. But that's not the message of the scripture. David knew better than that. We see it back in verse 3. In Psalm 103, 3, what is the very first of God's benefits that David lists? That he pardons our iniquities. He is not crowning us with faithful love and compassion because we've earned it or we've deserved it. God knows what we are. He knows we are sinners, and yet he pardons us. God knows we are sinners, and yet somehow still God crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. Y'all, that word loving kindness means faithful love, binding love. It means that God has obligated himself to you. He didn't have to. God is not obligated to do anything good for us, but he has obligated himself. Why would God make promises of all the good he intends to do? Because he loves us. And if God makes a promise, it's in his very nature that he must keep it. Because he's God. He can't break a promise. He's obligated himself to love you, to crown you, to bless you, to satisfy you, and to remain faithful to you as long as you live. Because that's who God is. God does not put up with you. That's not the measure of his love. That he's going to let you into heaven through the doggy door, if you're lucky, one day. No, God loves, esteems, elevates, satisfies, even though he knows what we are. Because he's bound himself to us. 
His love is faithful. Now, do you see, do you get an idea of why David wants his soul to remember these things? Why he wants to bless the Lord with everything inside of him? These are the benefits of God. Now, he's not done. I want you to look at verse 6 now. David goes on in verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. David is, um, when I said earlier that this is the encompassing love of God, David, and it may be kind of difficult at first glance to see it, but David is really bringing to bear the two primary problems that human beings live with. The two things that are most difficult for us, impossible even to overcome. The first is our frailty, our weakness. Something that, that we just, in reality, no matter how prideful we may try to, uh, to, be, to become, no matter how much we try to elevate ourselves, at the end of the day, human beings are terribly weak and frail. In verse 3, David mentioned disease. In verse 6, we just saw it, he mentions oppression. Later on, as you read the psalm in verse 15, David talks about death, the ultimate expression of our frailty and weakness, that we are but dust, that, we are, that life is fleeting, we are frail, and we all die. 100 out of 100, we all die. We're frail. And yet, God, in his eternal power, in his, in his mercy, in his, in his might, he overcomes every weakness. He heals disease, he's, he's a judge for the oppressed, and you see later in the psalm that his eternal promises go from everlasting to everlasting, that death for us is not the end of our story. Now that alone, God's strength and our weakness, that is enough to worship him for. But really, that's just one of the two chief problems. The, the thing that David gives more attention to in the psalm is the problem of human sin. Because human sin is not merely a problem of our own weakness and frailty. Human sin is a matter of rebellion, of willful choice, right? That you and I always, uh, that we continually make to reject and run from God. That's what gets most of David's attention because frankly, David, even though there were times where he was extremely weak and frail on the run for his life, the primary issue in David's life was his own sin. And that's what so many of the Psalms reflect on is God's redemption in his sin. So David shows us that we are rebels against God and because we are rebels against God, we desperately need, in an ongoing way, this kind of redemption, this forgiveness, this mercy and compassion. But there's something, there's something hidden in this psalm. It's not hidden, but to me, it's, it's, it's easy to miss. That, that when David talks about the mercy and compassion of God, we might get the impression that God is uh, like a grandparent, who looks at us as if we can really do no wrong. And even when we do wrong, you know, he just kind of shrugs it off, laughs it off because he just loves us so much. That's, that's the compassion, the mercy, the faithfulness of God. He's, he's kind of like grandpa. Um, but you notice, actually, it mentions it twice in the, in the scripture that we just read. Once in verse 8, again in verse 9, it mentions the word anger two different times. God's anger. That when David talks about God and his, his response to our sin, if, we, if we're tempted to think that God looks at us and we're just so precious that he, I could never be mad at you if that's how God feels about us, 
then we miss an essential part of his nature, that God has an anger, a wrath, a righteousness towards sin. See, when David says that God will not keep his anger forever, there in verse 9, how's that supposed to work? God does not keep his anger forever. Does that mean, you know, like what, what, what we might, how we might relate this, I've got two sons, my sons commit sin, they, they defy, they rebel, things like that, right? But, you know, time heals all wounds. And I may be mad today, but, you know, I'll sleep on it. Tomorrow will be a better day, a different day, a new day. Is that what we're talking about with God? You know, I, I committed some terrible sin back in 2012, but golly, that was seven years ago. And God's just, you know, he's gotten over it. Time heals all wounds, right? He won't keep his anger forever. Is that what David means? No, when we talk about sin, here's what I think we, we have to, and I, we're, we're going to go a little bit beyond just Psalm 103 here to understand the fullness of the scripture's message. When we talk about sin and the forgiveness of God, it goes much deeper than just eventually God will get over it. No, the truth is a righteous God cannot wink at unrighteousness. He cannot shrug his shoulders at sin. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that every sin and every act of disobedience receives a just penalty. Every sin, every act of disobedience receives a just penalty. Otherwise, God would not be just. God may be very compassionate. He may feel pity for us. He may feel sorry for us. But if God is going to be just and righteous and holy, then sin has to have a penalty. Sin must be punished. So for God to forgive your sin, don't imagine God with some great big rug constantly sweeping our stuff underneath it to ignore it, to move on, to forget about it, right? Time heals all wounds. We'll, we'll, we'll move past this. Right? That's not how God operates. Our sin guilt must be atoned for. It must be penalized. It must be dealt with. Now, in every other form of religion, this atonement is our responsibility. If I've messed up, if I've sinned, then I've got to do something about it. I've got to earn my place back into God's favor. I've got to do enough good to compensate for the bad, right? That's what religion teaches us. But the Christian message, y'all, what we call the gospel, the Christian message is entirely different. The gospel says that God himself, God himself, in his mercy and love, covers that cost for us. God absorbs the penalty of our sin. God absorbs our guilt on our behalf. That's the Christian message. Now, how is that possible? Only by sending his son, Jesus. Only by sending Jesus Christ into the world to suffer our condemnation in our place. That's how God solves this great problem. I like to quote from 1 John chapter 4 as often as I can. It's so good. 1 John 4, 9. Listen to how John phrases this. He says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Y'all, you recognize, I hope, that this is what makes the Christian message good news and not good advice. Good advice gets us nowhere. Good advice is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it sinks into the ocean. 
It would do you no good as a sinner to try harder, to do better, to have a new law that now I can fail at that law too, right? We can't live up to God. We're not righteous. And so God has to come down to us, and that's what he's done in Jesus Christ. It's good news that on the cross, Jesus became our sin. He took on our guilt for us so that our sin might be punished in him, on him once and for all. And because Jesus is God's perfect son, he's a righteous son, his righteousness is now given to us. His righteousness is credited to us. Our sin has been removed and righteousness in its place. And when God looks at you now, he esteems you in a way that he esteems his own son because you've been made the righteousness of God. Y'all, when David says, God has not paid us back according to our sins, oh my goodness. We can say amen to that. That's not a fingers crossed hope for us that we'll get to, one day we'll get to the judgment seat and hopefully we'll get in. Hopefully God will be mercy. That's Islam. We hope in the end God will be merciful. No, in, in the Christian faith, we know already that our sins are wiped away because Jesus Christ has served the absolute fulfillment of that promise. Someone else paid the price for us, so we receive grace instead of condemnation. Jesus pardons your iniquities. Jesus redeems your life from the pit. And this is a gift that you receive purely by faith in his name. We do not achieve it, we receive it. We do not earn it. It is ours as a gift. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not his benefits. You know what's crazy? I haven't even gotten to the best part of Psalm 103. Uh, or at least my, I say the best. My favorite part of Psalm 103. Uh, we don't have time for the whole psalm this morning. But David gives us a little miniature conclusion right in the middle of this chapter. And it really is one of the mountaintop verses in the whole Bible, to me at least. And so I want to encourage you to memorize this. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12. Look at how David concludes this thought. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Y'all think about the nearest star. It's the sun. It's 93 million miles away. Um, that's really an unfathomable distance. I mean, we can put a number to it, but you, you and I, we can't imagine 93 million miles. Right? And that's the nearest star. David is trying to help us to, to, to contemplate something beyond our ability to fathom. The love of God, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great God's love is for those who fear him. That's the span of God's love for us. And when we really think about what, what we've just talked about concerning our sin, our unholiness, our unrighteousness, for David to turn around now and say, this is how great God loves us, how, how much he loves me and you, this, it really doesn't make any sense that when I, when I realize how unworthy I am of, of this love of God, that, that all of us are in the same boat. Human history is just this long, sad story of sin and rebellion, and yet God loves us like this? Martin Luther said, if the world had treated me as it has treated God, I would have kicked the vile, wretched thing to pieces. Any one of us would have done that. 
If the world had rebelled against us the way it's rebelled against God, the world would no longer exist. We'd have put an end to it a long time ago. And yet David says about God that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness, his faithful, binding, self-obligating love. He's promised himself to us. That's how much he loves us. He loves us enough to come down into the world, to save the world, rather than condemning us. Think about that. It's beyond our ability to fathom. But that's the fullest expression of his love. Not that he would love us from afar. It's easy to say you love somebody. But for God to actually enter in, and that's what verse 12 is about. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. I heard a pastor say it like this. If you could stand between the two horizons and have a clear view of both, maybe if you're standing on the ocean uh, at the beach, uh, you can look to your east and your west and you get a very clear sense that there's this just infinite distance between the two. Well, suppose that you could travel 2,000 miles west, 3,000 miles, and then take a look at the horizon on either side. Would you be any closer to that western horizon? Would you be any further away from the east at that point? No. They would still seem to you to be infinitely separate, right? As far apart as they can be. And that's the point. That's David's point. As far as one thing can be from another, that's how far God has removed your sin. We see it all in the psalm. The Lord pardons, the Lord redeems, the Lord forgives, the Lord removes. You know, we could also say it like this. The Lord forgets. The Lord forgets. Hell, in Jeremiah 31, when God spoke to Israel and promised a new covenant, that which was going to come to fruit through Jesus Christ, listen to what God says to his people. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now we know, because we've been talking about it, we know what that doesn't mean. God's not talking about mental recall. That Kyle did something really terrible way back when, but I just can't remember. I remember it no more. You know, that's not God's attitude. That's not what that means. What it means is that in Christ, God no longer regards your sin. For those of you who are in Christ, God removes from his heart every trace of our sinfulness, our wickedness. And he declares us righteous instead. He forgets. He removes it from his heart. He remembers it no more. Isn't that amazing? Do you see why David would say to his own soul, bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. Remember his grace. Y'all, it's, it's possible, it really is, and, and you can attest to this, it's possible that we can have Jesus in our lives and yet he's not the true center We can have Jesus in our lives. We can believe in Jesus. We can come to church. We can do all sorts of of good, important, religious things, and yet Jesus is not the operating center of our hearts. Our deepest affection, perhaps, our greatest ambition is given to something else or someone else. We could say this, and you wouldn't say it out loud, of course, but we might say in our own heart, I want Jesus, I want Jesus, but not more than I want financial security or popularity or romantic love or career achievement, or successful children, or the approval of others. You fill in your own blank. I want Jesus, but I want that more. 
And y'all, listen, if that's the case, if that's the, re- the reality of my own heart, then I have forgotten God. That's what the scripture means. I believe in God. I haven't forgotten he exists. No, I believe in him. I'm in church. But he's not the center of my heart, and therefore I'm not remembering him. I've forgotten him. I've disregarded him. I've moved on to something else. And that's why every single day we need Psalm 103. Every single day at the deepest level of our souls, we're meant to do like David. We're meant to remember him, to call ourselves, to speak to our own soul and say, remember his grace. Take deep down into your heart the love of God. See him for who he is. Worship him for what he's done. Marvel at his power to rescue and redeem. Celebrate his mercy to remove our sin. We're meant to constantly rehearse the remembrance of God's goodness. You know, the, the Apostle Paul once wrote to Timothy. He gave Timothy an interesting command. He said, remember Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead. It may seem like a strange thing to command, but not if we understand the scripture, not if we've understood David's words today. Remember Jesus Christ. Think about him. Marvel at him. Delight in him. Fix your eyes on him. Remember him, the one who's been raised from the dead. Y'all, how do you press the love of God deeper and deeper into your heart so that God becomes the rightful center of everything you are, right? That's what David's aiming for in this psalm. How do you do that? Well, David says you remember him. More than mental recall, more than just thinking about God periodically, but you deep down in your heart, remember the Lord. You, you place him in that center place. Consciously, you speak to your own soul if need be. You do that because that's what it is to, to, uh, to reflect, to rehearse, to rejoice. You're fixing your life, your heart, your mind, your eyes on God. That's a conscious thing that we're meant to do so that we don't take him for granted. You're going to do it at Thanksgiving uh, lunch on Thursday. Let's go around the table and rehearse, recite, remember all the good things in our lives, right? Well, David says to his own soul, you do that every single day. And you will never run out of ammunition. You will never run out of things to, to thank God for. We will never run out of his benefits to extol. Y'all, when we sing songs in church, we're reciting, we're remembering. When we read the word of God, we're pressing deep down into our heart the grace of God who's allowed himself to be known through his word. When we fellowship together to encourage each other and pray for each other, we're remembering. We're putting God in the center place where he belongs so that we might not become proud in our hearts and forget who he is. All that is within me, bless his holy name. To the Savior who withheld nothing, but gave his own life for us, we get the privilege to return the favor. We get to give everything back to him. All that is within us, praise him and forget none of his benefits. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed this morning. Oh my goodness. Help us, Father to pause and reflect, to remember. Um, 
And protect us, Lord, from just making this a rote exercise to count our many blessings one by one. Um, Not just mental recall, but a deeper remembering, a deeper reflecting and rejoicing. That all, everything within us, Father, in this moment, that we might bless your holy name, You, Father, who pardons all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns us with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies our years with good things, Lord, who separates our sin from us and remembers it no more. Father, let this remembrance change our lives. That we, that we see you for who you are, we worship you for what you do, Lord, that we, that we put you where you belong, right in the center of the utmost importance, our greatest affection, our greatest ambition, to know and love and walk with Jesus. Father, th- thank you that you're merciful because you know our hearts. We are so easily forgetful. We're prone to wander. We're prone to take you for granted. Thank you for your mercy, Lord, and your faithful love. But Lord, call us into um, repentance. Where we wander, Lord, give us a heart to fix our eyes on Christ. Where where we're prone to forget, Lord, impress the, the words of Psalm 103 upon us. That we would speak to the deepest part of our soul, our life, our heart, and say, Remember, so that everything might be centered and founded on you. Father, I trust that we need this today um, more than we realize, more than we thought. Lord, don't just, don't just bring your, uh, don't, don't allow us to just bring you to mind on occasion. But Lord, take you deep down into our hearts so that every thought, Lord, might belong to you. Every decision, every word, every action, Lord, might be yours. Might reflect the love of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Make it so, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.